Prepare for Persecution, an interview of Andrew Pudua by David Rodriguez. What are the signs that persecution against Christians looms before us? How have the errors of Russia infiltrated our education system to greatly damage our youth? How can we help our children persevere in the true faith and prepare for martyrdom? And what applicable lessons can we learn from the Fatima children? Praise be Jesus and Mary. I'm David Rodriguez, content director for the Fatima Center, and today I am joined by Mr. Andrew Pudua. I hope some of you know him, but he might be new to some of our audience. So a quick introduction, but uh, welcome, Andrew. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's good to do this with you. Andrew is the founder and the director of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, commonly called IEW. Uh, he does speak around the world, addressing issues related to teaching, to writing, to thinking, spelling, music, and of course doing it all with clarity, insight, practical experience, and perhaps our favorite, a little dash of humor as well. He and his wife Robin have homeschooled their seven children and are the proud grandparents of 15. Is that correct? It is. It's Current number. Yeah. All right. Just by way, briefly, of introduction, I would like to mention how I first met you. And uh, I didn't actually meet you personally. I'm talking here of how I first, maybe should say, found out about your existence. <laughs> so I'm in the backyard. I'm working in some yard work, and I'm listening to some conferences that John Venari gave. And this was on the topic of homeschooling. And John said, you know, I'm going to go more into, let's say, the theory of education. So I know you all have all these questions about what homeschool program to use. He goes, I'm not going to recommend any. There's a lot out there. Go find out the one that works best for you. And then he sort of checked himself. He said, but, but, but wait, there is one that I will recommend. And that's IEW by Andrew Pudua. Like, that's the best program for writing English. And so that's how I got introduced to you. Well, it's good to hear that that was... A positive for you. Sure. No, John Venari was a great friend, uh, and he has departed, so we continue to pray for the eternal rest of his soul. My wife knew about you, so she started giving me more podcasts, and of course you're very involved in, let's say, the homeschooling environment, which is what's prompting this talk, right? We, my family and I, we were recently at a great homeschool convention, and Andrew was speaking, and so I heard one of his talks, which was called Preparing for Persecution, a curriculum proposal. And I was really fascinated by that, because I... I don't normally think of going to a homeschool convention and hearing about persecution. Yeah. So I said, well, we got to listen to this and hear what he's saying, because, of course, maybe with the message of Fatima, we know a little bit more about persecution, or it's more on our radar. So I guess it's just what prompted you to think of that topic, or that it would be necessary for us to have at a, at a homeschool convention. Well, you know, the whole world kind of shut down for a while, and we looked at various things that were happening, and... Uh, I follow pretty closely the, I guess I would say, the disaster of curriculum that is being foisted upon children in so many government schools. And you know, I always like to say, I know a lot of really good public school teachers who are great people, but when you look at the big picture of what's happening all over the country and the influence of the LGBTQ plus, you know, crazy thrusting of totally inappropriate content in the schools, particularly for young children, and the vehemence with which they do that, 
and also just kind of the anger that is so evident now. One of the the reports I came across that kind of spurned, it, it kind of pricked me, was 25% of Democrat voters would favor government either fining or imprisoning people who simply speak out against the vaccine line. And the narrative. Yeah, I mean, COVID regardless vaccine. of what you think about vaccines, the fact that half of half of the people in the country would favor government, you know, fining or imprisoning people, and approximately the same number would favor removing children from parents' custody if they refuse medical treatment mandated by the government. And I thought, this is a huge change, this 25%. And it's kind of scary because that's a big number of people. And I live in a bubble. I spend almost all my time talking to very like-minded people. So when I hear someone say something, I just think, well, that's, that's an anomaly. There can't be very many people who actually think or believe that way. But I, I fear that over the past few years, that number of people who think so very, very differently is much larger than I would like to consciously admit. And a lot of it is a flat-out hatred of freedom, a hatred of Christianity and its associated moral codes, a hatred of the family. And you just see this undermining happening in so many areas. It's kind of like, well, you know, it's maybe not handwriting on the wall, but it's sure obvious wherever we go now that we're dealing with a world where a large number of people actively hate the freedom that the other people are trying to retain, religious freedom of speech, freedom of conscience. No, and I think uh, it certainly dovetails very well with what Our Lady predicted in 1917, because I would classify much of what you're describing, uh, and I don't know if people make this connection, so it is important, the errors of Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, this sort of uh, totalitarian state where thought is censored, uh, the cancel culture that we've got going on right now. I mean, all of these things come about when you have a, the powers that be, for example, if it's a state government control, that want to govern all aspects of our life. And we're certainly, I think, moving very, very much in that direction, far more rapidly than any of us may have thought. But even the state-sponsored schools and the kind of indoctrination they're doing, mm -hmm. that's also an era of Russia. I think people don't necessarily consider it that way, the destruction of the family. Yeah. You know, the, even in the 1920s, after the Bolshevik Revolution, they definitely were aiming at destroying the nuclear family. They wanted to separate the father and the mother, and so they were actually really promoting promiscuity. Mm -hmm. They were promoting you know, state-sponsored prostitution. They were promoting uh, abortion and mass. And, of course, of course, you cannot leave the children in the home. Right? You have to take the children away from the parents so that you can now form them the clay. You want to form it your way and bring them up to think along your lines. And that's how you can also breed some of this hatred and this fear. Right. And a lot of people will look at that and say, well, we're not like the Soviet you know, era. We're not there. But I don't know if you read Rod Dreher's book, Live Not by Lies, but highly recommended book. The first half is pretty depressing because he 
kind of draws all of these very direct and obvious connections between not only the Soviet Russia Eastern Europe area, but also Nazi, you know, the German control of people in that time, and then fiction like 1984 Brave New World, and points out that, yeah, we aren't exactly like any one of those, but we are kind of in the middle of a lot of forces that have converged, and a lot of people are waking up to this. He calls it the soft totalitarianism that's driven by the corporate technocracies. Right. And it's kind of, like I said, kind of depressing, because by the end of the first half of the book, you feel as though it's hopeless. What am I going to do? Know, here we are in the intersection of all this, and this has got to be end times. But then in the second half of the book, he relates the experiences of many, many families who lived through the Soviet persecution era with their family and faith intact. He interviews people whose parents lived through the Nazi era. He has these incredible stories of the preservation of family, integrity, Christian faith, and hope. And so the book takes a big a big hit on your spirit, but then it brings you right back up, and you think, hey, you know, we're just called to live in these times. We don't get to choose. Right. But we've we got to see the signs of the times and learn from history. As you were mentioning that, I was just thinking there was a lady I knew. She's actually, she passed away a few years ago, but her name was Ann Garbowski. And, and she came to our parish, and she loved Our Lady of Fatima, loved the Latin Mass, and yet she, interestingly, grew up as a little girl in Nazi Germany, mm. and her family had to escape. Mm-hmm. But they only, I think, escaped, if I recall the story correctly, because, you know, one evening she, she told us a lot of this. I think they escaped to Czechoslovakia. And then, of course, it got there also. Yeah. So then they were sort of stuck, right. uh, and they had to bear through it, and she did lose family members. You know, eventually she made it to the United States, but I'm pretty sure that was after World War II, so she suffered a lot of that. But what she told me, and this was quite a few years ago, and this was not even, this was well before COVID, she said, I'm very concerned. Because everything that I see happening in this country mm-hmm. is things that were happening over there. Yes. And so it's like all the signs are there. Like we're not learning from history. And that concerned her greatly. That's exactly what Roger had an experience of meeting someone in that exact circumstance who said, this is what we experienced when we were young. And I think so many of us, you know, we could use the overused frog in the pot uh, analogy, which I have heard, by the way, is not actually true, and, but I haven't got a frog and tried the experiment. However, the the common analogy is it happens so gradually that we don't really notice until it's just too late. So I think part of my motive in creating this talk was, well, I didn't really want to do this talk. Because you you say, okay, I'm going to do a talk. The original title was Preparation for Martyrdom. Like, who wants to go to a convention where you're supposed to get enthusiastic about teaching your children and building your family and your homeschool and think about martyrdom? So I toned it down ever so slightly to Preparation for Persecution. But the question is on my mind, none of us are ready for what's coming. We just don't have, in our experience, and at least I'll speak for myself, in in memory of anyone I know, personally, 
who lived through an active persecution. Of course, there's many, many stories, but how do I, how do I as an individual reconcile the fact that the country I'm living in now is very different than the one I was born into in so many ways, and things are happening so quickly? I don't think any of us could have imagined 10 years ago what we're talking about right now. It, you would have said, no, that could never happen in this country. Not, not in this country. No, it did. And I'll tell you, just, I mean, it was, uh, you know, I was thinking along these lines a bit, and it wasn't quite 10 years ago, but there was a time where my wife and I sat down with my father, you know, and he's, uh, he'll be celebrating 80 years of age this year. And, and we told him, we said, we see on the horizon this idea that there could be concentration type camps in this country where people are being cut off. And we've already seen those type of camps in other countries. We, we kind of got off maybe easy, I think, with COVID vis-a-vis -vis other nations, yeah. you know, Australia and other places where they were having these kinds of camps and you saw these videos. Um, so it didn't quite hit here, although there's plenty of talk that those things might be getting prepped and there might be the existence of them, and I believe that's true. But I remember telling him that, that that's going to happen. I, I could see it happening in my life and my children. And he was like, no, no, no. And I was like, come on, Dad, put your money where your mouth is. Let's, let's do a little friendly wager here. <laughs> now, actually, I think he won the wager because we did put a time limit on it, and uh -huh. I think we're past that time limit. Okay. I haven't brought the topic up back, back with him. so Unless uh, the days be lengthened. <laughs> but but we're certainly, you know, people just don't believe that it could happen, like you say. Well, the one thing I thought is leading up to this, you know, this Sunday, I'm at Mass, and so this is for whenever you watch the show, it is the Sunday between Ascension and Pentecost. Liturgically, we call it the Sunday after the Ascension. It comes from John chapter 15, a couple of verses in John chapter 16. So our Lord's at the Last Supper giving his instructions, his final instructions to his apostles, and he's speaking, of course, about the paraclete, the advocate who's going to come. But then I like this one line, I thought maybe you'd comment on it in, with respect to this topic, our Lord says, these things I have spoken to you, that you may not be scandalized. Of course, there means led into sin, induced into sin, like lose the faith, for mm, example, mm. scandalized. They will put you out of the synagogues, yea, the hour cometh, that whosoever killeth you will think that he does a service to God. And these things they will do to you, because they have not known the Father nor me, but these things I have told you, that when the hour shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. So I see him preparing us for martyrdom, preparing us for persecution, which is the theme of the talk. And I mean, the really sort of twist that I emphasize as I read it was just this notion that those who come to kill us, to harm us, uh, actually think they're doing good, right? Like, how have we gone to this, this point where things seem so upside down? Well, it's the classic problem of a redefinition of terms. So things like equality and equity, things like... I don't know what you'd say, enforced understanding, right? So we, we must acknowledge whatever sin is in the world as being not sin. Otherwise, we are committing the sin. And so we've, we've moved into this zone that one of the things that I referenced in the talk was a book by a couple authors who really almost kind of on the classical liberal side. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind, The Three Great Untruths. Mm -hmm. And those three great untruths, we don't have to, time to unpack them all, so people have to go get the book if they want to. The first one being, uh, trust your feelings. 
Ah, emotional. Right. Heresy of emotionalism. I'm going to talk on that. They uh-huh. can check it out. And, yeah. that, and, and their point is, these are three great untruths that are deeply embedded in the curriculum, in the culture, in the fabric of almost every college out there, every college and university. Even Christian and Catholic schools, you know, maybe the teachers aren't pushing that as actively as they might be somewhere else, but all the young people who've come out of schools have been indoctrinated. So trust your feelings, right? Uh, the second one is, if it doesn't kill you, it will make you weaker, right? Therefore, I can't suffer criticism. I can't suffer someone disliking anything about what I do because that hurts me. Now I'm going to be less of a person. Well, this is untrue at a molecular level. I mean, you can look at, you literally can look at yeast cells and what happens is when you restrict the calories or put them in a situation of being too hot or too cold for a limited amount of time, they become stronger. Mice who suffer hardship live longer. And so from a basic biological point of view, that is not true, right? It's called hormesis. It's a word I just learned. Basically means if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Sounds Greek. And um, I'm actually reading a book, almost finished right now, which your wife recommended to me, um, Against All Hope by Armando Velardes, who is in Cuban prison for 22 years, starting in the early 60s. He's still alive today, after 22 years of extraordinary malnutrition and beating and sleeplessness, and like every bad thing you could think of. And he's, I guess he would be 80 two years old, if my memory about when he was born is correct. Like, I mean, that should have killed everybody, and yet he didn't. So that's the second one. And then the third one is the one that, you know, I think is most relevant to our thinking here, which is everyone is either good or bad, Mm -hmm. right? And when you eliminate sin from the discussion of humanity, then you have this competition between people who claim to be good, right? And, it, and the logic kind of goes like this. Well, if you disagree with me and I'm good, therefore you must be bad. And everything about me must be good because I don't have sin because sin doesn't exist. Therefore, everything about you because you disagree with me must be bad. So everyone is entirely bad or good. And you juxtapose this against Chesterton's comment, what's wrong with the world? I am, right? And so I I don't quite know how we will ever restore a sensitivity to conscience in the general public today uh, because they've all identified themselves Wrongly, yeah, no, I mean, and I think it's a uh, it's a pervasive problem. I certainly seen in the churches you were talking about it. I mean, I often say it's a it's a lack of critical thinking or uncritical, certainly lack of charity. But even you know, one of the things that we've seen in the church since the Second Vatican Council, especially, is a sort of fracturing of Catholicism. It's not nearly as united as it used to be. In many ways, we're more like you know all these different Protestant sects where you have a variety of them. You're starting to see it in the Catholic Church, which is real sad. But then. Add the element you just mentioned, what happens so often is in whatever group you're in, call it a charismatic group, call it a traditional group, call it within tradition, various groups, 
everybody starts thinking, I'm the good one. Yep. I'm the right one. And therefore, because you disagree with me, instead of sort of saying, you know, there's space here for us to follow, be disciples of Christ, and there's a place for charity and some real critical thinking of the real problems, we attack each other, we're divisive, we hurt each other more. You know, we're not living the gospel. So I definitely see that. And, you know, one thing I thought very interesting that you said at the start is how we're redefining things. Mm. So I would say... As I see it, the only way we can redefine things, that's, by the way, kind of like a telltale sign of the heresy of modernism, mm-hmm. right? Loose definitions that can be moved around so that you're saying one thing but mean completely the opposite. And so you can have traditional dogmas of the faith being expressed, but you really mean something different by them. But it's two things, and, and both I trace them. I mean, they're really interconnected, but I trace them to the errors of Russia, and that's atheism. See, because God doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And so if I can say God doesn't exist, objective truth and objective reality doesn't exist, and therefore, truth is subject to my own definition, and I can change it. So this is how I can begin to redefine things, right? But that atheism is at the root of, obviously, communism and these areas of Russia, as well as the idea that's connected with atheism, but it's evolution. So evolution being the concept that everything is changing from the biomolecular level to the cosmic level in the stars with the Big Bang lie to just everything about evolution, then everything's constantly changing. So, you know, there's no truth, there's no God, and everything changes, so it's supposed to change, and I can change it how I want, so now I can redefine everything, and those who truly are trying to be good, as our Lord said, they'll kill you, because they don't know God. Atheism right there, right? Yeah, and, you know, this tracing things back to the errors of Russia, another book that I reference is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, who is, uh, he's a philosopher at Grove City College, and I don't read hardcore philosophy, so this is kind of philosophy light, but it's essentially the history of the error of thinking, the errors in thought that brought us to where we are, particularly with this sexual identity and gender identity confusion that exists in so many otherwise seemingly good people. Like, how did this happen? And so he points out that really it began with the early Romantic poets in the early 1800s, Shelley, Wordsworth, who challenged the idea that we could be happy in monogamous married love. That somehow that was in opposition to personal fulfillment, personal satisfaction. And then, of course, that whole century, what did we see? We saw Nietzsche, right, and his whole shift away from man needs God to man creates God, essentially, and God is dead, and we're now free. Right, man's will to power. You know, we we then saw, of course, as you mentioned, Darwinism, which... I would view the greatest problem of Darwinism is this, and it's not necessarily Darwin, but it's Darwinism, where man is no longer a special creation. We are simply an evolving animal. And that changes the entire definition of humanity. And then he goes on to point out that really we suffered this, what he calls the marriage of Freud and Marx. So Freud... uh, established this idea that all human motivation is sex at its core, sexual at its core, even from infancy. And this became so dominant in the emerging field of psychology, which was relatively new in the 1800s, right? And then Marxism, which is the history of mankind is class struggle. 
And he points out, and he says it's very interesting because we essentially know now that economic Marxism is a failure. But instead, what we now have is this sex Marxism, sexual Marxism, starting, of course, with the homosexual rights idea and then expanding out into all sorts of disorders of the family that result from the complete rejection of that. So what I got out of that book is essentially that you know there's all these historical philosophical forces that backed up for 200 years almost to get us to where we are today. And how do we navigate through? Because his argument is, is essentially the Marxist who promoted the errors of Russia are now going to do the same thing, only not with economics, but with class struggle. And so what do we see being pushed? Not so much socialist economics as we're seeing the critical race theory and the racism that is being fomented Right. Uh, along with the complete breakdown of an understanding of male and female and the family as the fundamental unit of society. These are all being horribly and rapidly undermined by the Marxist approach. Well, I think you're right. I don't know if Truman traced it, but that idea of, you know, I hadn't quite heard that about the Romantics, but that makes sense to me because, again, if you just look at the history of the Catholic teaching of the popes and how I trace that really homosexuality is, it was, it was before it even became big. I mean, it was still in the, in the 90s. I mean, it was already around, but it wasn't very big. And I remember talking to a friend of mine. I was in seminary at the time. And I told him that was coming. And, and he didn't believe me. Mm-hmm. And I said, it has to come because of the logical progression of things. And this is one thing I wish people understood. Because ultimately, as the Catholic Church teaches, obviously the marital embrace, the conjugal act, is for the procreation and formation of children. Right? So we can get souls to heaven. And that's what marriage is for, to unite man and woman in this way. And that's got to be done in monogamy. So... That starts getting broken down, really, really, it starts with the no-fault divorce. No-fault divorce, once you allow that and a culture gets comfortable with that, well, then you realize that you're going to have to also allow a certain contraception mentality. And once the culture gets fine with a certain contraceptive mentality, you've got to allow abortion because the contraception will fail sometimes, right? Because if there's no-fault divorce or you want to have fornication or things like that, that's where the the contraception is logically linked. Then you have to have abortion. And once you get to this point that you're so demented and you've got this sort of ritualistic, satanic sacrifice of the child in the womb, of its mother's womb, then the marital act is no longer marital. It's just an act. And I can do it however I want. Right. And so I've even told people that, you know, that so then we get to this, uh, the homosexuality, the LGBT plus thing. And I told them the other thing that's coming right down the corner is going to be bestiality. I mean, sure. that's going to be well, a logical thing. And, and it's polygamy, group. pedophilia. I mean, Everything. And, and infanticide. And we're, we're seeing arguments in academia for all of those things exactly. right now. And then there's the trickle down effect. And so, yeah, I guess for a lot of people, there's a confusion about identity because mm-hmm. the world is trying to identify us in unnatural, disordered ways. For example, if you ask me who I am, never in a thousand years of imagining the stupidest things I could say would I define myself as a cisgendered, heterosexual, white, 
middle class male. Uh, Those aren't things that occur to me if I were telling you about myself. And yet there's a big chunk of society that would label me that way. And that would be the most important thing because now you can set me up in opposition to all sorts of other things. The good and the bad. Whether I have opposition to things or not is irrelevant because you've defined me that way. So I think one of the biggest problems we see is that the schools, to a great part, and then the peer pressure and the media uh, right with that are trying to force everyone, especially young people, to identify themselves in disordered ways. And this whole idea of identity, after I read Truman's book, I thought, it's T-R-U-E-M-A-N, by the way, Carl Truman. I thought, that is really the curriculum that is being disordered that needs to be restored. Because if you if you had this horrible circumstance where... You know, Velardes in Cuba, he wasn't imprisoned for faith. He was imprisoned because he simply refused to put a picture of Castro and a Castro regime slogan above his desk. I mean, it was that minor of a political offense. And yet, once he got into the system, he resisted. And his resistance against reindoctrination, his resistance against the regime, 22 years... And I think in the course of that, his faith became stronger. But he knew who he was. And when you're stripped of everything, I mean, think if you're stripped of your bank account, your home, your job, all access to information, even separated from family and friends, even no phone, right? I mean, if you have nothing, what do you have left? Your identity. So that's how I got on this idea of a curriculum that would help families and anyone who's interested in in learning to define and helping our children learn to define themselves in a way that they then could survive with their conscience and soul intact. Well, we're running out of time here, so real quick, I just want to bring up a couple things from Fatima and talk a little bit about a possible solution. Sure. Uh, the solution, two fronts. Um, one, people who follow our channel and in other talks I'm going to be giving, well, I'm going to be talking specifically about the solution our Lady of Fatima brought, which is obviously the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary worldwide, really is what that's going to accomplish, as well as the First Saturday devotion, obviously praying your rosary every day, wearing your brown scapular, things like that. So and we'll talk more about that religious nature, but... But just so that we are aware, from the third secret of Fatima, in the vision, there is that very chilling vision where the Holy Father passes through a big city that's half in ruins, half trembling with halting step. He's afflicted with pain and sorrow. He prays for the souls of the corpses he meets. So there's a lot of dead people there on his way. And then he's going up to the top of the mountain where there's a cross. And then, on his knees, at the foot of the big cross, he was killed by a group of soldiers who fired bullets and arrows at him. And in the same way, on their knees at the foot of the cross, there died one after another, the other bishops, priests, men, women, religious, and various lay people of different ranks and positions that were making this big procession up that mountain. And so that's a chilling sight. I think it's still coming. If we don't heed Our Lady's requests quickly, and it 
doesn't look like we're doing that. So that's, I think, why we also have to prepare ourselves, because Our Lady has already given us a vision of, of what is coming. And it is a terrible martyrdom of the Pope, the bishops, the priests, the religious, the laity, all of us going up there. Bullets and arrows, interesting also, wondering why. I wonder if that doesn't mean there's a certain scarcity. And so you don't want to waste all the bullets you know, you've got to use your arrows also, perhaps. I, I don't know. I mean, there's other visions that St. Jacinta had, for example, of great famine in the world. And so I would say, obviously, we have Our Lady's solution. But the other one, and maybe this is what we can touch on more with our children, I think, from what I heard in your talk, and that's that when she first appeared, May 13, 1917, she did talk to the children, although I think it applies to us as well, where she says, do you want to offer yourselves to God to endure all the sufferings that he may choose to send you as an act of reparation for the sins by which he's offended, and as a supplication for the conversion of sinners. And of course, the children said, yes, we want to, which is, you know, what we got to do, give this really affirmative, yes, we want to. And she says, then you're going to suffer a great deal, yeah. but the grace of God will be your comfort. So we have this concept of endurance, of sacrifice, of suffering, but with a purpose, not blindly. Here it's reparation, conversion of sinners. And so how do we train our children along these lines? Well, stories. I mean... That's what we have, is the stories of those who did that in various times in history, from you know 20th century and the horrible, horrible oppressions and persecutions, but all the way back, you know, I, I work in the world of education, mostly with homeschoolers and schools, and I had this stark realization, early Christians in the first couple centuries, they did not raise their children to be comfortable and successful. Pretty much all of us today are thinking we want our kids to have a good education so they can grow up and have a family and be comfortable and be successful. And so many people think about that, like college and career readiness is all about what education should be. But the early Christians, what did they do? They raised their children to be martyrs because... All Christians were persecuted and martyred, and that was way more important than any other part of being human at that time. And I don't know how we regain it, but I would suggest scripture, memory, songs, poetry, and of great import are the stories. Um, Rod Dreher, in his book Live Not By Lies, tells the story of how he went over and talked to this mother whose the father was in in prison most of the time when their children were growing up for religious persecution and the kids had to go to you know the government indoctrination programs but the family survived with its faith intact and so he was asking how did you do this well you know one thing is every day i asked them what did you learn at school so i could counter those lies with scripture and with truth and I read to them a great deal. And he said, what, what were the most important things? She said, well, the Lord of the Rings. And he said, why? And she said, well, we knew Mordor was real. And so those stories that build into our moral imagination, the idea that we are in this incredible struggle, we don't get to choose when we've been born, I mean, you and I have had pretty darn comfortable lives up to this point, but there's no guarantee that that's going to continue on indefinitely, or for our children, or in my case, I have many grandchildren. So 
what is this world going to be like for them 10, 20, 30 years from now? Well, we need to furnish the mind and the heart and the soul with the fortitude, the moral imagination, the physical strength, and of course the understanding of uniting sufferings with Christ as a conduit of grace. And that's the culture that we need, I think, in education, in Catholic education in particular, and in the home that we need to focus on the most. Yeah, and, uh, you know, grace, grace will build on nature. Mm-hmm. It's a basic Timistic principle, basic Catholic principle. And so I think little things with our children. You know, I mean, one story that I really love is I got a little three-year-old, Josephine. She had some friends over the other day. They are mostly her age, and I think one of them fell off a tree, scraped themselves. I forget exactly what, right? But the other little child was sort of whining or crying, complaining. And a little three-year-old Josephine kind of gets in the other kid's face. He's like, you've got to offer it up. Offer it up to Mary. And so it is possible yes. for even our little children to already be thinking this way. I, I actually didn't know she'd have that vocabulary just yet. And I want to remind her that when she falls <laughs> and she's crying, that she also has to offer it up. But if we just, uh, several things I would say, especially with our children, but even for ourselves, and, and Lent is connected to this, you know, delay gratification. Absolutely. We're very much at instant gratification. It's making us soft and effeminate. Yes. So even when it's a legitimate pleasure, delay it for a while, you yeah. know, or tell, your, tell yourself, no, you've got to build that up, to, I think, to make yourself strong, as well as enduring those things that we don't like. You know, St. Louis de Montfort talks about if it's cold, don't complain. If you don't like the weather, if it's hot, or if, you know, you're itchy, you know, don't scratch. All these different, just little things I think that we could do, especially training our children, that will give them the natural part. And then, of course, we add the grace with offering it up to our Lord. And that's what the children did in Fatima, right? All these little discomforts they had, they constantly offered them up to our Lord and to our Lady, and then they became great saints by it. Yeah. One, one last thing I would throw in, so there's a, a Vietnamese, Marcel Van is a Catholic martyr who is in North Vietnam and suffered imprisonment and, and persecution. This book I read was more about his youth and his growing up rather than his later life and the suffering. And there was a quote in there that I, I marked it and I dog-eared the page and I wrote it in a book. And that was that the holy things take root more readily in the innocence of youth. And that just resonates so well. And it also explains why this intense attack on innocence and the types of, I mean, literally pornographic material that's being used in classrooms with young children is so disordering to the soul. And a lot of parents have no idea, or they'll say, well, yeah, that's happening over there, but our schools would never do that, and yet it is. And so I have been feeling that I want to encourage, you know, all parents to not worry about being overprotective of children's innocence. You know, the whole world is like screaming at parents right now. Your children need to see this and know this and do this because it's the world they live in. And you keep them overprotected and somehow they'll be harmed by this and so there's this i think almost all young parents today have a fear of being overprotective i would argue that if there ever was a time to be overprotective of children's innocence it's right here 
and right now because the attack on it is so intense. And there was another, the day after Easter, I was at a, I think it was a Maronite church mass, and the gospel reading was Jesus came to the eleven after the resurrection, and it says he chastised them, or he rebuked them for their lack of faith and hardness of heart. And when I heard that, and I was thinking all about this, I thought, that's not two different things. That's the same thing. Lack of faith and hardness of heart. One causes the other. It's a feedback loop. And if you want to undermine faith, where do you go? The heart. And how? what's the opposite of hardness of heart? Softness of heart. Purity of heart. Innocence. So, I, I look at my children who have children, and I realize they are... You know, they could easily be thought to be overprotective, and yet they're preserving the beauty that will allow strong faith to grow, we hope and believe. I know purity and modesty are certainly very important, the connection between the faith and charity. I think I'll close just with something that, that you actually in your presentation, although it's from Dostoevsky's, right, the Brothers Karamazov. Father Zosima is there, and he's talking to a doubting woman, And he tells her, one cannot prove anything here, but it is possible to be convinced. Mm -hmm. We need that as well. And she says, well, how? By what? She wants to know how to be convinced, right? This this faith, and now we're going to see the hardness of heart also. So Father Zosima responds, by the experience of active love. Try to love your neighbors actively and tirelessly. The more you succeed in loving, the more you'll be convinced of the existence of God and the immortality of your soul. And if you reach complete selflessness in the love of your neighbor, then undoubtedly you will believe. And no doubt will ever be able to enter your soul. This has been tested. It is certain. It's my favorite quote. And it kind of goes with the words, Ubi caritas, Deus ibi est, right? And we just say that, where, where love is, God is, right? But... What do we mean by love? And how to define love properly? And of course, Christ himself made it super clear. No greater love hath a man than this, that he give his life for another, right? For his brother. And, and you know, we are called to follow Christ, not just in service, not just in selflessness, but in suffering and sacrifice. And so a lot of us are okay with the service part, you know, if we get paid. And the selflessness, yeah, okay, you get married. But this suffering business, we don't have a context for it. And, you know, we look back at the Christian tradition of not just delayed gratification, but mortification. Mm -hmm. And the more aware we are of our sin, the more we want to be free of that sin And that's when we pursue the faith and the sacraments. And part of that is this idea of mortification, whether it's through fasting or, you know, giving up something. Uh, It it goes way, way back to the earliest Christian and even pre-Christian Jewish traditions. Um, And I I don't think we live in a world that's going to help our children develop this at all. So it's incumbent on us as parents to to live it 
and to teach it or to teach it by living it. And it's hard because we we don't know how. Really. Because it's the cross. We got to keep our gaze based on the cross. The cross is difficult, but there's always the resurrection after the cross. We've got to get to that. Uh, we could do another podcast on that whole love concept, the cross, maybe some future time. Probably. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. My if, pleasure. Uh, God bless you and your, your work. Your work as well, because you're helping form our children. My, my children love your classes, by the way. Just got to sneak that in there, because they'll enjoy hearing Well, they, they come <laughs> to the convention, sit in the front row, and smile at me the whole time, even when I'm talking about you know misery and persecution. <laughs> you're talking about the cross, and they're sitting here smiling. <laughs> Let's go ahead and close with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Holy Lady Fatima, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. This presentation has been brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. For more resources regarding the Catholic faith and the message of Fatima, and to support this vital apostolate with a donation, please visit our website, Fatima.org, or call us at 1-800-263-8160. For the glory of God, the honor of Our Lady, and the salvation of many souls, please share the Fatima message with everyone you know, and may Our Lady reward you. Our Lady of Fatima, Pray for us.